be with you. It's great to see a full house today. Kenny said, if you see me in the second row, it's probably because the church is packed. So I tell him, I said, well, I hope I get to see you down here again next Sunday. Um, we have been in a series looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon, son of David. Solomon also wrote the Proverbs. He wrote Song of Solomon. He wrote a handful of the Psalms. Um, he has started out life, I mean, when you read through the Proverbs, he seems like a pretty positive guy. He seems like somebody who has a forward-looking outlook on life. But when we get to uh, Ecclesiastes, he's actually an older man, and he's grown sour. Now, we don't grow sour because we get old, but he has grown sour, and it's because he's walked away from the God of his father, David. Uh, when you consider the accomplishments of this man's life, it's quite a shock to see him in this state. Uh, I think the picture that you got here is of the home, sl- or actually on the front of your bulletin as well, just a painting from the 1800s by Gustave d'Or, and it depicts Solomon here at the end of his life as he's, he hold, he's holding in his hand uh, one of the leaflets or the letters of Ecclesiastes, and his face is just drained of all vitality. It's just kind of the way he looks at life now. He's grown quite sour again. He's accumulated massive wealth. He's drunk in all the pleasures of the world. He's been searching for meaning in his existence. Look this way, look that way, can't find any of it. Um, and so he's come to this place of basically being what we've, de- we've um, defined him as the Eeyore of the Old Testament. Um, our text for today presents yet another of his arguments about the meaninglessness and the absurdity of human life. Our text comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 9 through 11. As is our custom, I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We stand week in and week out to be reminded that this is where truth comes from. We have so many voices speaking into our lives. I was talking to somebody the other day. They said that the average uh, listening span of a human being like 20 years ago was about 12 seconds. Like you could hang on to me for 12 seconds until it wasn't interesting anymore. Now it's drawn down to about 8 seconds. And it's like because we have so many things that are just constantly in front of us and things are changing and our attention's constantly taken in different directions. But we stand week in and week out be reminded, look, this is what we can build our lives on, folks. This is a sure and solid foundation. This is God's truth in written form. That's what this is. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, let's read verses 9 through 11. Here we go. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You may be seated. All right. Um, Let's kind of dive into these verses together. Uh, Before we get to uh, that little section of scripture there, um, I wanted to point out, perhaps you heard during the announcements, the guys were playing a song that maybe sound familiar to you as you were walking in here in the countdown this morning. You heard that same song being repeated. It's a song called Turn, Turn, Turn uh, by the Birds, a band group called the Birds. We've got a slide of the the Birds here. Um, And so these guys actually didn't write the song. It was written by Peter Seeger in 1959. And then uh, the birds picked it up and covered this song, and it became wildly popular. Uh, They released it in October of 1965. It hit the top of the Billboard charts by December, so just a couple of months later. Part of the popularity of this song is that it was released at a time when American culture was on fire. So the the, uh, Vietnam War was escalating. Uh, The fight for civil rights was on. Racial tensions were in the streets. But this song stood in the midst of all of that chaos 
And it reminded folks that life is full of seasons. That eventually, even though we're going through a bad stretch right now, things will turn around, hence the title of the song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Um, I've got one more slide for you here. This shows the lyrics of the song. I'm not sure how well you can read it, but anyhow, there it is. Those are all the lyrics of the song. Uh, you'll notice there's a few words at the beginning of the song and a few words at the very end that are highlighted in yellow. Um, and there's only seven total of those words that are highlighted, seven unique words that don't come from the scriptures. Peter Seeger literally took Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 from the, from the King James translation of the Bible and then put those into, into music. Um, so, in fact, he sent royalties off uh, or part of the royalties, uh, he sent off to the nation of Israel uh, so that they could, um, so he could recognize where, credit where this song had come from. What's interesting, though, is that when we look at these words through the lens of Solomon, who wrote these words initially, Solomon never intended these words to bring hope to anyone. In fact, these lyrics were part of an ongoing rant that Solomon has been making now for several chapters about the sheer monotony of life, the predictability of life, and of human existence. This song was misery seeking company. That's what it represents. Um, now, on the one hand, you have the birds who interpreted these words as beautiful, and they saw hope in these words as they saw the inevitable refreshingness of the seasons of life. And again, sooner or later, things are going to turn around and they'll be working back in the other direction. Solomon, quite to the contrary, saw in the seasons of life absurdity, repetition, nothing new under the sun. Again, as we said a couple of weeks ago, we are just hamsters on the wheel. So we have two people looking at the same data, at the same pieces of information, and arriving at two very different conclusions. On the one hand, you have one that sees hope, that sees optimism. On the other hand, you have one that's crying out, all is vanity. So what I want to do is take a look at this from Solomon's perspective as it was intended. Uh, and then we'll talk about what difference all this makes to your life and to mine. All right, so here we go. We're going to jump to verse 1 of this section and work our way toward those verses we read. Verse 1, remember we're in the hands of Eeyore here, okay? Verse 1, Solomon opens up, for everything. There is a season, and for everything, there, that's kind of how he writes it, right? There's a time um, under heaven. Solomon says, you want proof that all of life is vanity? Remember this guy, that's his thesis statement. He opens up Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 2 with vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's his thesis statement. And the rest of this book is him trying to prove to you and convince you, misery-seeking company, that, that is the, that's the conclusion of the matter. Again, do not read into these words positivity. Uh, rather, read negativity. It's just more vomitous talk from the heart of a very twisted and cynical man. He says, let me give you some proof that life is meaningless. Just consider the seasonal nature of life. Verse 2. For example, there's a time for us to be born. And then there's a time for us to die. Right? There's a time for us to plant, and we got to pluck it all up again. That's kind of the way he's spouting this. His point is that life just drones on. Life is repetition, or as he said back in chapter 1, there is nothing new under the sun. Now, from the bird's perspective, again, these words, the fact that there are seasons in life, there's an ebb and flow, spell H-O-P-E. 
But for Solomon, as he's looking at this and he sees the repetition of life and how it just keeps repeating itself, just hamsters on the wheel, it all spells V-A-N-I-T-Y. Verse 3, more examples of the repetition and the monotony of life, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. The point is life just keeps going in these predictable patterns. Solomon wants out of the predictability. He wants to control his life. He wants to bring some permanency around life. He's sick and tired of seeing himself as just another one of these hamsters on the wheel. Got a slide for you here. The slide shows all the categories of life that Solomon mentions in uh, verses 2 through 8. This is not, in, Solomon does not intend for this to be an exhaustive list. Rather, it captures the, the, the range of human experiences from birth to death, from, to war to peace. He captures agricultural concepts, human emotions, and human relationships. These categories form the range of human experiences. He offers 28 categories in all. There's 14 positives and 14 opposite negatives. Now, when you take 14 positives and you subtract from that 14 negatives, it's not tough math, what do you get? Zero, that's right. So the net gain, Solomon, is, this is what he's trying to tell us here. The net gain of life is zero. And so Solomon is saying that's what we get from life, zero. There's no net gain from the human experience. What we come away with from life is nothing. At least that's Eeyore's perspective. Solomon compares our human experience to the swing of a pendulum. Moves between war and peace. Moves between birth and death. Moves between laughter and and, and um, sadness. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, back and forth. Again, we are just hamsters on the wheel. Striving after something that we cannot keep. Everything that he touches, Solomon holds in his hands and it just seems to drain through his fingers. No permanency to anything. Everything he amasses when he dies, he complained back in chapter 2 that it's going to be left to somebody else to probably squander, Right? Everything he builds, sooner or later, someone will come along and make changes to it. Again, there's no permanency to anything. Thus, he concludes his thesis statement, all is vanity, life is meaningless. Now, I'm not going to read through all these positives and negatives. You all can read through some of those on your own. Um, instead, I'm going to jump ahead to his concluding remarks, what we read a few moments ago, beginning at verse 9. Let's take a look at that. What gain, he asks, is the worker, or has the worker from his toil? Notice again that he's referring to work still here in chapter 3 as he did in the former chapters. He's still referring to work as toil. Toil is pointless. Toil is meaningless work and energy and effort. It leads you nowhere. And so he's saying that's what work is. And he's raised this question earlier in the earlier chapters. Again, he's still in a negative state of mind. And this is his question again. Uh, what do we gain from our labors, from our toil? Verse 10, answer, I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man. Notice the word busy occurs twice there in that same verse. This is, again, a Hebrew literary device using repetition in order to drive home a point. And the point he's making is that our life is full of busy work. That's what God's given you to do, a bunch of busy work. And that's all our lives are. That's the way he sees it. Um, busy work can be defined as work that has no lasting value. And Solomon says, on the whole, what do we do day in and day out? We mow the grass, we do the laundry, we clean the house, we draft the plans, we make the proposals, we teach the students, 
and it's all just busy work in his eyes. It's, not, it's going nowhere. This is just frivolous uh, repetition. Again, he no, sees no sense of permanency to life, no sense of permanency even to the things that he accomplishes. His point is there are no net gains to life. Life is just busy work. I don't care how productive you are, everything we do under the sun, sooner or later, it's going to be gone, even birthing babies. He says there's a time to be born. I mean, big deal in his mind and because you're going to end up just dying. So in other words, he's saying, Mr. Hamster, Mrs. Hamster, yeah, I mean, your offspring one day, you're going to be gone, and they're just going to re- assume your place on the hamster wheel. So, um, would you agree that Solomon is in a pretty rotten place? <laughs> I mean, mentally, this guy is like, you're wondering, do we need to send you to get you committed or something like that? I mean, he's, he sounds like he's out there. Um, When we arrive at verse 11, Solomon rallies for a moment. He writes, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Oh, well, that's a nice little ray of sunshine that you threw in there for Solomon. I appreciate you recognizing that. But then he reverts right back to his complaining, right back to his ranting. He says, middle of verse 11, also God has put eternity into man's heart. That means the ability to see the big picture. You as human beings, me as human beings, can see the big picture of life going on. We can observe the passage of time. Whales, deer, uh, other animals like that, geese, all have uh, instincts when the temperature changes to go somewhere else, right? Head south, head north, whatever, head different places. But those instincts are just built into them. They don't realize that time is passing along. They're just acting out of instinct. So God has given to mankind uniquely the ability to perceive the passage of time. He has put the concept of time and eternity into our hearts. Yet, God has prevented us, this is Solomon's sore spot, prevented us from being able to see all of life and all of time from that 30,000-foot view the way God sees it. I mean, all Solomon gets to see is this one little slice happening right there in front of him. And he can read history books about what's happened in the past, but he didn't get to go and experience any of that. He just happened to deal with what's right in front of him. We never get to see around the corners. We never get to know where all of this is headed. Sure, we have this unique ability to contemplate the passage of time, but that leaves us guessing about the meaning and the purpose of it all, of all this toiling under the sun. Where are all these pendulum swings taking us? Solomon is frustrated. Perhaps he wishes he could have the blissful ignorance of the deer and the whale and the geese. We get to verses 12 and 13. Solomon continues with his rant. He writes verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for man than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. As though being joyful and doing good were insufficient answers to the question about the meaning of life. Verse 13, also, he says, we just eat and drink and take pleasure in all this meaningless toil. I've tried that. I soaked it all in, left me still with a God-shaped hole in my heart. And then the final statement, verse 13, this is the ultimate statement of cynicism. It's missed a lot in commentaries and just as we read through the text. This is a cynical statement, okay? I put a question mark. This is the title in the front of your bulletin. This is the title for the sermon today. I put a question mark after this statement. 
That's really how Solomon intends this. He says, this is God's gift to man. Really, God? Life out here on the horizontal plane, this is, this is it? This is, this is what we get? Really? Thanks. A whole lot. Appreciate that. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. All right. That is our treatment of this text for today. Smile. Okay. I know Solomon's not, but we will. Um, I, I, so that's our treatment of this, our text for today. So that means that we need to stop and ask our most important question, say a question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to my life? Um, all of these verses constitute Solomon asking the ultimate question of life. Uh, as you read through this, you, you, you whittle it all down. There's really one question at the heart of everything that he's asking. And it's the question, why? Why? It's the question that's on the tongue of every three-year-old, every four-year-old, every five-year-old, right? They come to you constantly and they say, why? Why, Dad? Why, Mom? You tell them the answer and then it's why. And they just keep following that up perpetually. If you ever had one of those moments with a little one, you know that they can persist in that question. And it seems like they're never satisfied with the answers that you give them. Finally, Mom or Dad has to say to them, what? because I said so. And then that settles the issue, and they go on for a little while until they come back with more questions. Um, as you discover these past weeks, and again today, Solomon is tenacious. I mean, he's, he's, he's biting down here and not letting go of this question. Um, he keeps poking at God. He wants to know, God, where is all of this going? Why do we keep doing all the things that we're doing? What's the point of all this human activity? What's the point of life under the sun? We're born. We die. We go to war. We have times of peace. We plant. We pluck that stuff back up. We laugh. And then we weep. God, what is the point of all of this? Are we just some form of cosmic entertainment for you? So that you and the angels have something to do to occupy your time? If so, that's a pretty cruel joke. Again, God, what is the point? Why are we here? Is human history going somewhere? Or is this just like some never-ending YouTube video? You know, it's rare that we stop and ask questions like this. Who has the time? Honestly, who has the time to sit around and contemplate this stuff? Solomon did. He was fabulously wealthy. Didn't have a worry in the world. Had people taking care of stuff for him, cooking for him, doing his laundry, whatever it was. Um, but who has time for this? We've got kids that get off school. We've got projects that need doing. Uh, we've got all kinds of things that are waiting for us. But when I'm standing, friends, at the graveside of someone who has just lost their dear loved one, these are the kinds of questions that we begin to ask. We say, God, if you would share with me why, it would really be helpful to, to me. It might even help me get through this very difficult season of life. But God, when you leave me with that question unanswered, it's like torture to me. And so we ask God, why? When the doctor's office calls and gives us that knee-buckling diagnosis, and then everything in life just kind of comes to a screeching halt, and in that moment we look up to heaven for answers, and we say, God, why is this happening? Can you explain this? Can you help me understand why it is I'm going through what I'm going through? What good could possibly come 
out of this. Again, God, if you would let me in on the purpose for it, perhaps, God, you would, I would welcome the suffering. Perhaps, God, if I understood why it was happening, I would find joy in my loss. But here I am, stuck with unanswered questions. Why? Now, that is not a wrong question to ask. You know, God's our Heavenly Father, and He wants us to come to Him and say, Daddy, can you explain this to me? Daddy, why? Friends, those are perfectly normal and acceptable questions to ask. We don't have God's perspective of things. I know we wish we did. Solomon wishes he did, but we're just not privy to it. It's only natural to go to God who has the answers and ask him to help us understand. No one has ever lost their salvation because they asked God an honest question. He's big enough, he can handle it, and he wants us to come to him. However, there comes a point when our Father's response to our incessant questioning becomes, because I said so. And for us to continue like Solomon, to peck at him and to kick the dirt in anger and frustration because we didn't get our question answered, friends, that sets us up to become cynical like Solomon. Cynicism can become a prison. It can become a place where joy evaporates and where the vitality of life leaves us. All of life becomes a sour note. We're no longer able to see life as a gift, but rather it becomes a drudgery, tasteless. A bitter root is growing in the heart. Again, just like Solomon. Perhaps you'd say, Gordon, if I'm being honest, I've been burned one time too many in life. And I've asked God why, as I was going through the suffering, and I've emerged on the other side a little bit more calloused than I was before I went into it. I've had circumstances that have arisen in my life that have sent me with my knees buckling and down to my knees, and I've approached the throne of God, and I've beat on his chest, and I've been comforted by God, and I've cried out to him, but I'm still stuck with the question. I, I can't understand how he could tell me Romans 8 and 28 that he's working good through everything. Friends, it's a perfectly honest question to ask. It's an acceptable question to ask. But again, there comes a point where our insistence to understand and know the answer, something that only he, only he is privy to. You'll understand, let me just assure you, you will understand one day. And our God has promised us that he is working for our good through all things. It'll make complete and perfect sense one day. But here we are like Solomon, stuck between this sinful world that we live in and eternity. And we're trying to make sense 
out of the life that we're living and we're trying to make sense out of the negative column of stuff that sometimes flows into our life because life's full of seasons. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Say, Gordon, if I'm being honest, I admit that, yeah, you know what? Maybe I've asked that question and I've asked that question perhaps too much. And God has told me because I said so. And I'm just not willing to accept that is the answer. In just a few moments, we're going to share in a time of communion. And after that, we'll have our closing song. Uh, the front's always open. If you have some burning questions that you need to come and bring before God, that's perfectly acceptable to do. But you may also want to come forward and bow your knees here before the Lord and just say, God, you know what? I recognize that I may never know in this life. And I just want to express to you that I'm going to continue to trust in you. This morning, if you would like to come forward, we would invite you to do that during that closing song. I'm also going to be standing over here off to the side with anointing oil. Perhaps you have some physical infirmity that you'd like to be anointed for. Or perhaps there is an infirmity of the mind that has taken root in your heart and in your life. And you would like to find freedom. You would like for joy and vitality to be restored. Nobody's asking for you to stop crying. Okay? Nobody's asking for you to do that this morning. But the Lord does want us to set us free, perhaps even this morning, from that prison of cynicism and that prison of bitterness that can quickly define us in the wake of loss and difficulty. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, you, you meet us right where we live. Lord, thank you so much that you're a God big enough to handle the deep questions of life. Thank you, God, also that you are working through all things for our good. One day, we will see that clearly. Lord, if there's some healing that needs to take place inside of our heart, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to move through this place, that you would set your people free where we need freedom, that we would experience joy abundantly. Nobody's asking us to stop crying. Nobody's asking us to be someone that's fake. But Lord, we want that joy that's different than happiness. Joy, Lord, that, that, that Paul had, where he was able to find joy in all circumstances of life. Lord, that's only something that can happen as we press into your heart and into your chest, O oh Lord. Holy Spirit, move and stir in our hearts, direct our minds this morning. May we respond today in obedience, wherever you lead. As we gather around this table, Lord, we're reminded of your broken body and your shed blood. You are our access to the Father. Thank you, Jesus, for being our intermediary. We give you this space. Stir and work in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.